it isn't really the time you invest, it's the energy you invest in whatever time you have aligned with the mission. Energy is the substrate that makes everything happen. Time is simply an opportunity to make the investment of the one thing that actually can change the needle, move, move things forward. People don't want your time, they want your energy, says my guest, Dr. Jim Lear, on this episode of Renee Vidal, sharing stories of peak performance. Dr. Lear is one of the premier performance psychologists in the world and the New York Times bestselling author of more than 17 books, including The Only Way to Win and my personal favorite, The Power of Full Engagement. In our conversation, Dr. Lear shares his greatest thinking on leading with character, how to develop unstoppable energy, and what it takes to live a big life. For actionable tips on this episode, check out RenéVidal.com. Are you ready? Let's go. Dr. Jim Lear, it's so good to see you. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Renee. I'm uh, excited to have this conversation with you, and uh, I hope we can get into some issues that create value for uh, all of your audience. Absolutely. Yeah. As we discussed real briefly, right, you know, before going live, you know, you've been an inspiration to me for my entire career. I started my career as a sports science intern at the USDA Player Development Headquarters, and uh, Dr. Paul Rodert, who headed up uh, that division um, at that time, brought me to a couple of conferences. I had a chance to see you speak on the platform, and the minute you began, I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be like that guy. Um, you spoke about mental toughness. You talked about the power of sports psychology. But you, your, your presentations have always been about uh, helping people perform and lead at the highest level. I know that um, you know, your latest book is called Leading with Character. I'd like to start yes. there and sort of pass the baton on to you in terms of what was your intention behind the book? Well, it's been an interesting journey for me, you know, as a psychologist and began to really specialize in helping athletes perform to the upper level that they're capable of in a high pressure environment. You know, I got into the whole mental toughness space and, you know, competitive strength and but, I, you know, we had this institute that we developed, Dr. Jack Roppel and I developed in 1992. And uh, we had, you know, probably to date, some 400,000 people have gone through the institute. And it's an, I love big data sets. I love, I'm a research guy, a data guy. And um, I am kind of shocked that I ended up in the character space, which for me, I never had any training in that as a psychologist. That was the purview of philosophers and you know religious leaders and so <laughs> forth. And now I find myself, my last two books have been really delving into the role that character plays and sustained high performance. And, and the way I got there um, was by, you know, we had, we worked with 17 number ones in the world in their sports from Olympians, gold medalists, silver medalists. We had FBI, anti-terrorist teams and special forces, Blue Angels precision flying team. We had sumo wrestlers come and spend six months with us. 
We had world, world renowned chess champions. And then we had thousands and thousands of corporate executives, which we called corporate athletes. It's really, it was a living laboratory of high performance. And we collected so much data, you walk in and the first thing we did was we drew blood. We got a pretty extensive blood panel on everyone who was there. We then stuck you in a bod pod and got your lean body mass. And before you came, you had to fill out all kinds of questionnaires and information about all the aspects that we were going to be looking at. And, uh, and then, you know, that then people would go through the program and for years and years, and we sold the company to Johnson and Johnson in 2008. And I stayed on for another six years to help with the transition. But for all the thousands of people who went through, we developed a system for helping people make changes. And I read every single, we had people rewrite their stories and uh, really put in down in black and white exactly what had, what's been their thinking on a particular issue that's been problematic and how they might readjust that. And we looked at their, their physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual profiles and the spiritual profile began to emerge as the single most important dominant factor in well-being in overall performance um, in a sustained way and that all delves into the area of purpose of values of beliefs who you really are from a from a value perspective how do you see yourself how do you um, really attribute value to you and to what you do and so on and so forth and the mindset that you have around that. And so the data drove us to character and the leading with character is the um, kind of the application of that to the broader arena. Of, a lot of it is business oriented, but there's a lot of personal, you know, areas of um, application there as well. But uh, I never would have guessed I would have ended up in the character space as someone pushing high achievement, but um, that's where I ended up. And um, I, I, uh, I feel very fortunate to have had that living lab to kind of guide me there. Now it's all over the place. Character now, you know, it's been around for the great, the greatest thinkers have all toyed with this notion of what character is from Socrates to Plato to Aristotle to the Stoics. And I began reviewing all of their stuff and tried to understand really what does it mean to have character and why is character playing such an important role in a performance equation? What, what is the connection there? And, um, and then we started to delve into our own definition of character and understanding it. And, you know, and that, that became probably the dominant kind of, you know, search in my own professional life for answers. It's interesting that you mentioned how, how you started in mental toughness and then over time, you, you know, you sort of expanded into other areas and, you know, I've read so much of your work, as you know, and I remember reading The Power of Full Engagement, and there's a section 
on you know, essentially spiritual toughness. And I remember you know, saying to myself, this is the first time I've ever seen or read Dr. Lair sort of bring this topic up. It was very, it was different and much needed. And I mean, that book was a massive, you know, mass success uh, in part, probably because you started to talk about areas that not a lot of authors were, you know, go places where a lot of authors were not willing to go. Can you break break it down first, what does it specifically mean to lead with character? So it's really interesting, uh, Renee, that um, we began to collect all this data and um, the, I wrote a piece, um, I had a co-author that we wrote in the Harvard Business Review called The Making of a Corporate Athlete. And uh, it was the first time in the history, I believe, of the Harvard Business Review that the word spiritual ever appeared in the Harvard Business Review. But we defined it in a way that actually made the editors comfortable enough. And now it's like everywhere. It's like, it's just no big deal. It's like, everyone talks about it. But at that time, um, we realized that Character, um, there are really two types of character. And this is where coaches in sport, I think, get very confused. That there's something I would call performance character, which are really acquired competencies that support high achievement, high achievement um, as an individual or as a team. And those are things like focus, uh, discipline, positivity, grit, persistence, um, resilience, decisiveness, ambition, you know, and uh, being competitive and so forth. There's a, in leading with character identified 25, there are many more, but these are assets that actually help you drive extraordinary achievement in whatever it is you're chasing. And, uh, but when you, when you talk about character, there's also, there's a connection to this thing we call virtue. And um, the, the early thinking with Plato and Aristotle and so forth, there was this notion that character had something to do with being good and doing good, that there was a virtuous connection, but there's no virtue in, uh, in focus or positivity or grit or resilience. Those, those have no connection. So it was very confusing. So a coach would say, oh, my players really showed a lot of character out there tonight. Well, they're speaking about maybe intensity or a lot of these things that we call performance character strengths, their focus and so forth. But there's another whole area of character that we began to explore. We call it moral and ethical character. And these are acquired competencies that support the ethical treatment of others. The, um, the way in which you treat other people takes you into the virtuous category. 
if it's in a positive way. So things like, you know, competencies like integrity, honesty, um, kindness, compassion, um, patience with others, gratefulness, um, generosity, um, love, empathy, and so forth. These define um, kind of the rules of the road for how you treat other human beings. And they are learned just like persistence and focus are acquired. These are acquired assets that help you become a more virtuous person. And for us at the Institute, we began to look and to have a fully functioning person with sustained success, you need a boatload of both. But we learned from the, from the data that the highest priority in terms of an individual is the ethical, moral and ethical category. That, you know, Bernie Madoff, who ended up devastating the savings of, you know, so many people, he had a boatload of achievement assets. He was persistent, he was positive, he had resiliency, he had everything. There is no morality whatsoever in any of that and in any of the performance assets. And so you can become a great achievement, but you can achieve her, but you may walk over dead bodies. You can cheat your way to the top. And a lot of coaches try to take it, it's called gaming the system a little bit, you know, fudging the system so, so that you can win. And, but what we learned was after looking at the lives of all these high achievers, that there was something deeply woven into the fabric of our DNA about how we treat others. And people who, who really treat others badly in their chase to achieve they, they have the sense of not really being that fulfilled in the chase. And so when they commit themselves to getting to the top and it's just for themselves only, the purpose is really to become a star, to become famous, what we call extrinsic motivators. It's almost like you have to redo it. Oh, you're only as good as your last performance. You really don't have the sustained sense that you are a valuable person because of the connection that you don't have with other people. And so we look at this issue of sustained success and a sense of deep fulfillment in the doing, in the chasing. And we found that I called it the hidden scorecard that we all in a sense are measuring consciously, mostly unconsciously who we are by our treatment of others. And so we established a priority of the moral and ethical uh, strengths over the performance. You need both to be a successful high achiever and to, and to really do great things and sustain that. But that was such an interesting journey for me and, uh, and for all of us at HPI. So we really established this notion of purpose at the highest level. Why the heck are you here? What is your goal for being? You know, you were, you were granted the gift of life. You won the, the lottery of life. What is this all about for you? And the deeper people would get into that space, they realized their lives were really not really about them. It's giving their life away to a cause much bigger than themselves. 
and that the highest priority is how you treat people in your quest to make a contribution. And then you need to have all these assets of focus and persistence and decisiveness and so on and so forth. And together you can make an extraordinary contribution. So I have a couple of questions um, to sort of not necessarily build off of what you said, um, but to sum up you know, your comments there, you're, are you saying you know, it's not just what you do, it's how you do it? Right. 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 Um, and that, that's been my experience, you know, working with, you know, some successful people in sports and in business, you know, and in life in general, you know, they're very concerned with how they do things like it's, it's very important. It's not just about the outcome, you know, the tangible outcome or result. My, my question is, how do you square up your approach with situational leadership, you know, this sort of commitment to, you know, morals and ethics, you know, but then you've also got situations you could just, you could have, I could sense that there may be some pushback from leaders in the business community around, around that, around situational leadership. And also, um, how do you measure, you know, how do you measure um, sort of the right moral decisions and behaviors and, and things like that? How does it affect the bottom line? So, you know, it's, it's a great question, Renee. And um, for a long time, business leaders saw things like compassion and love and warmth and, uh, you know, just caring kindness as weaknesses that, you know, you, it really doesn't have a real important place in the, in the portfolio of strengths in a great leader. It just gets you into trouble. It just makes you, it makes it more agonizing. What they want is toughness. They want mental toughness. They want, uh, you know, people who can realize what needs to be done and just get it done regardless of how it might impact people's feelings. But that has changed because um, people begin to realize that there are lots of ways to scale the mountain. And um, if you're obsessed with getting to the top and being, um, you know, number one, and you don't really really pay close attention to the rules of the road in terms of your treatment of other people. We've learned that you won't stay at the top very long. And the reason you won't is people don't want you to be there. They don't feel that you really, really are the kind of person that you would like to follow. People wanna follow people who have integrity, who have honesty, who are authentic who care about people genuinely, who have a sense of kind of a, an understanding of, of the, how much you're giving as a person to make this enterprise successful. And so there's a sense of valuing the person and treating them with respect and dignity and understanding that this is tough business 
but the most important priority is the fact that it's, it is your body that's producing all this energy and that without you, you know, we're not going to have much. And so I want to treat you the way you would like to be treated. And I would like to be treated, you know, by others the way, you know, I, I would like to be treated. Um, and people are always keeping score. And what we found, um, these are, there's been a lot of data collection around it. Uh, um, companies, they're called uh, companies that uh, have the sense of connection to others, terms of endearment, that you actually look at companies that have, you know, really placed a high priority on taking care of their people in a really supportive way and to really look at that side of it as maybe being the most important dimension of the business, their um, success of firms of endearment in a sense have had have outperformed just about all the other companies that are even close in terms of competitive um, profile because they're their employees are fully engaged. They, you want to be around someone who's fully engaged. And that means I have to feel valued as a person. I have to feel like I'm in a culture that really understands the sacrifices that we make and has concern for your well-being as a human being, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And so it becomes good business. The biggest takeaway that we had at the Institute, which is remarkably almost embarrassing, out of all, if I said the number one takeaway that we learned from all the data was that health ignites performance. That all we were doing with all these extraordinary people from military special forces to corporate executives to all these world-class athletes, all we did was get them to be healthier physically emotionally, mentally, and most importantly, spiritually. And when people get healthier, their bodies just start, when they have the right purpose, when they have the right mindset, when they're taking care of themselves physically and they have a, an abundance of positive emotions, something happens, the system just ignites and you go to a level you never had seen before. So, whether you're a coach in a college situation or whether you are a, um, a coach in a corporate sense in, a, in an organization, these principles apply across the board. So we were applying the same technology across all these diverse populations that were coming to the Institute. And we had astonishing success. And this is not just success. I mean, financially, we were very successful, but we had, you know, peer reviewed. Um, research from Tufts University, from PhD candidates, and looked at the impact of this training at six months, nine months, two and a half years. And it was astonishing to the reviewers who had nothing to do with us that in training, it's very rare that you get a sustained impact over a very long period. It's just not that sticky. We, uh, we had a, a quite... Um, uh, a record for making a difference. So we feel the difference was that we connected to how we are engineered as a species 
more completely than maybe had been done in the past. And we acknowledged and, and understood how the spiritual dimension in human beings must be tended to. And spiritual just simply means, um, you know, the energy of the human spirit, you know, your purpose, your value, your sense of being, uh, why you're here on planet earth and how you want to conduct yourself and what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? And so we take people to the end of their life, they create their eulogy, they look at what would I like to have etched on their tombstone as representative of who they really were when they were here. And the more you reflect on those things, the more you get a sense of what the heck your life is all about. And that's where all the integration occurs. This alignment is so important. You remind me of an article that I read early in my career. Uh, USA Today um, had a magazine embedded in it called Parade Magazine. And there was an article on John Gruden, the, the NFL coach. Yeah. And he was awarded some, something along the lines of most caring coach. And it was a good article. And I, I don't remember the details, but I do remember making a commitment to myself. I said, that's a great goal. I, I'd like to be America's most caring coach. And it was my private goal. And it just would, it stayed with me. And it's funny because when I, I look over the course of my career, whenever I've succeeded, it's because I've been true to that. And every single time I failed and I failed a lot, it's because I moved away from that and put, you know, shifted my priorities for whatever reason and maybe focused on winning and outcomes and things like that and not um, taking care of the soul, you know, taking care of the soul and the spirit and the emotional fabric of the athlete. Um, we keep coming yeah, the, back. Yeah. I was just going to say that I have such respect for coaches who have there's, you know, the conditioning process is so powerful that the only thing that matters is winning. If you don't win, you're out. And you have like a year or two max. And if you don't, you're, you're out. And, you know, most college um, athletic directors, ADs, they'll tell you, you know, you can have any philosophy you want. I just want you to know that if you don't win, you're gone. <laughs> and, uh, but there are those that have demonstrated that it is, really the secret to coaching. Uh, coach Billy Donovan, who's now a coach who was at University of Florida and was at, uh, coaching the Chicago Bulls, Pete Carroll, they have developed a legacy. I have so much respect for the way in which they treat their players and how they approach their work. They actually see themselves, you know, as actually, um, they, in a sense, they're Sherpas helping people to get to the top of the mountain and making sure that they are all tended to physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. They care about their players and their players can sense it. And that causes players to, to dig deeper, to look inside and to try to come up with the stuff that's actually going to make a difference in terms of getting to the top of the mountain. So yeah, it's, it's counterculture, countercultural, but there, there are real examples and I have 
so much admiration for those who take that path. Can you talk to us a little bit um, about the distinction between time management and energy management? Because you've alluded to this a little bit during this conversation. Yeah, and it was a it was a big thing. I, as a coach, you recognize this, uh, but as we had our own tennis academy, we had Jim Courier trained there when he was number one in the world. Pete Sampras trained there. We had our own academy of kids. And, you know, you would watch and you'd have some of the kids, they'd all maybe show up on time, you know, and some would get a great return on the investment of time. And others got a reverse return. And, you know, I was you know, always looking at the industry of time management. I knew Stephen Covey pretty well, and I knew his son, Stephen M. R. Covey, was on our board. And I was always challenging them. I'm going, you know, I think you might have missed something here. And they go, no, I don't think we have. <laughs> and I said, I think that the, that the thesis that you are promoting and a billion dollar industry has been work, has been built around this. And it is, I really feel a false premise. And they go, I, I don't, I, I can't imagine that. There've been too many smart people in this industry that would not allow that to happen. And I said, well, you tell me if this isn't correct. This is the promise of time management. That if you wanna be really successful in life, truly have a successful life. The first thing you have to do is to define what really matters to you. You have to define your values. You have to decide what is this really all about for you? And then once you do that, you need to very courageously begin to carve out time and invest time in all those causes and people and events that matter most to you. And in that investment of time, you will get the return. You'll have the life you want to live. And that will define success for you. And I say, I would say to Stephen Covey, I would say, is that correct? He'd say, yeah, that's pretty much right on. And I said, that is 100%, 100% false. And he says, how in the world could that be false? And I said, because time has no power. Time has no valence. You can be, um, the goal of being home with your children uh, your goal was to show them how much you care about them. And you spent four hours, but you were watching television, you were angry, you were irritable, you were grumpy. You got a reverse return for the time invested. And it wasn't, it isn't really the time you invest, it's the energy you invest in whatever time you have aligned with the mission. Energy is the substrate that makes everything happen. Time is simply an opportunity to make the investment of the one thing that actually can change the needle, move, move things forward. So, um, you know, when they began to think about this, they developed the notion of quality time. <laughs> and quality time does not exist. I said, Stephen, energy has quality, has quantity, has focus and intensity. All energy in the universe possesses those dimensions. Time does not have quality. Time is, and you can't really, you can't really, you know, monitor or manage time. Time just keeps rolling out. You manage yourself around time. 
but you don't manage time. It's just going to roll out. So I really feel like the most important consideration is that we are reservoirs of potential energy. And the more energy we have, the bigger life we can have. When you're out of energy, life is over. Life begins with the first pulse of energy and all systems in the body are driven through some kind of energy dynamic. And so you have to have time management. You have to manage your time, but the critical infusion in that equation is the investment of energy. And I call that full engagement, the, high, the greatest quantity, quality, focus and intensity of energy right here, right now. And that's what people want from you. They don't want your time, they want your energy because you take life out of your body and you give it away to them or to a cause. And that's how they know you care. You can spend 25 years in a marriage, 25 years, and there's no real recognition of any kind of caring there at all. But you can spend you know, a, a year in a marriage and have devoted so much of your energy, given so much energy to this person that they are literally overwhelmed by the sense of how much you care about them. So people want our energy. Everyone wants our energy. And because energy is life and whatever you give your energy to, you give life to. And it is a recognition that this is what I care about. I care about you. I care about this event. I care about this cause not because I've invested time, but because I've invested significant energy in whatever time I have. I love it. I've got goosebumps. Uh, I could feel your passion. Um, for, for anyone or for those of us um, top performers, so to speak, who are always looking for ways to optimize our energy, do you have two or three sort of real practical, quick suggestions you can offer us? Well, first of all, as I said, if you want to have a big life, you got to be a big spender. You know, we are, we are who we used to be. We are where we were as a species. And as a species, we developed a conservation bias of energy. We want to become very stingy with our energy, and that's because our ancestors when food and shelter and everything was scarce, they didn't want to waste energy because they, they needed that energy just to survive, to get whatever they needed. So they never wasted energy. But today we have all the food and water and clothing and shelter, but we still have this sense of being stingy with our energy. We, we kind of, you know, people with, a, they did a research project on people with a remote television changer and they took that away from them. People would sit for two hours watching shows they don't like because they don't want to get up and have to change the channel. I mean, we, do, we don't want to spend energy. It's called laziness, but you, know, you can be on the sidelines and conserve energy for your whole life and not have much of a life. You, know, you didn't have a lot of stress, but not much happens. If you want to have a big life, you're going to have to be a big spender. And then you, uh, so where do you get the energy? And all energy comes from only one place. And that's from the cells of your body, from the mitochondria of your body. Every single of the 30 trillion cells in your body has its own energy production plant. And uh, that energy production plant can be recruited 
and direct it into whatever. As long as you have energy, you have some ability to direct where it's going. And so the physical body, that union, that cellular energy production is basically, it's called a Krebs cycle, but it's basically the union of oxygen and glucose. So the fitter you are, the better your oxygen transport and the better glucose delivery to the cells, the more energy you're gonna have. So if you don't eat right, if, you don't, if you're not fit, if you don't sleep right, if you don't get enough rest, if you don't, there are so many things that contribute to energy production. And so to really get the ball rolling, you wanna make sure you take care of yourself. A healthy body produces great energy. And then you gotta decide with all this energy, what am I supposed to do with it? And you've <laughs> gotta buck this sense just to stay on the sidelines and be uh, and, and really save, you know, be a hoarder of your energy. You wanna have a big life, you gotta spend baby, you gotta spend big. Just like in the investment world, you want to be a, a big investor, but you want to be a smart investor and you want a great return for the investment. And uh, <clears throat> so the first thing I would say is understand where energy comes from. No energy comes from any other place other from cell, from the cellular dynamics. And then you want to have a very clear sense of what your priorities are for making investments. What, who do you care most about and what do you care most about? And that's where your energy should be directed. And if you want to have, for instance, a world-class bicep, you want to have twin guns on both sides, <laughs> you can have that. But that's an upgrade. That's an upgrade. If you want to do it, you can spend hours in the gym and never change the dynamics of your bicep. You want to have big biceps, you got to go in and you got to invest energy in those biceps well beyond what you normally do by lifting weights, stressing those biceps. And then in a few months, you're going to come out and go, look what I've got on both sides. But that's not normal. That's an upgrade. You want to have uh, a, an, ex an extraordinary asset of kindness or honesty or authenticity or integrity or um, compassion and even competitiveness. And then all of those assets, focus, uh, discipline, all of the assets on the performance side, you can have those, but you've got to work at it. You've got to do the work. You've got to do the heavy lifting. And that means you've got to invest energy repeatedly over and over and they will grow. You grow what you invest your energy in repeatedly. And so... Once you've got the energy, then you decide what are the highest priorities for investment. So I can have the life that I will be really happy at the end of my life. I call that getting home, that I will get home in life because I have really understood what my life is all about. You know, when Covey said, begin with the end in mind, I could not, I could not agree more with what Covey said there that we need to understand what the why is for our life and then make sure that we end up fulfilling that um, with the investment of our energy. So that, those are just a couple of you know, insights into this equation of investment. Jim, if you could go back and give your 20-something self career advice, what would you say? Um, 
You know, I've always been a little bit on there. I'm always questioning things. I, I, you know, just like the time management. I don't look at things the same way other people do. Even my approach to sports psychology in the beginning, my book was turned down by 19 publishers. They said, what the hell is mental toughness? That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> and my father published 5,000 copies and um, because we couldn't get it and he was a former professional um, baseball player. And uh, it went viral, then it was picked up by a major publisher and it became one of the best-selling sports books in sports history. And it was completely antithetical to the way the world was looked at in the world of, sport, of academic sports psychology. And it's because I went about it in a very different way. And I would say that follow your own path and be curious. Don't just accept it because one day you're gonna wake up and I'm gonna be the same. You'll find that 80% of everything you thought was true was not true, it was false. You had a misinterpretation, you got it wrong in some way. And, um, and you have to be kind of courageous to go against the grain. And you don't want to go against the grain just to be, you know, antagonistic, but you want to look at it from different perspectives and see if there might be most inventions come from turning things upside down, inside out, and not accepting. It's like, well, who was it that said, we've now in invented everything that can be invented. And this was like the 17th century, you know, <laughs> it's like, well, our brains can dupe us in some pretty tragic ways. Um, I'd also say I would take more time to reflect, more time for reflection, to try to understand what does this all mean? Where are you going? And, um, and then I think it's really important for us all to kind of walk our talk. If you want to teach something, be it yourself. The more you can be what you teach, the more of a power you are in actually making people believe this actually works. As opposed to saying one thing, this is what players hate in their coaches, that the coaches, you know, take care of yourself, do this, do that, be a positive. The coach doesn't take care of themselves. They're always <laughs> negative. All the stuff that they're talking about is not represented in the reality of the coach's life. And it is a big disconnect. And then I would say, you know, try to find a way to enjoy the journey as much as possible, because that journey won't last nearly as long. Don't wait to be uh, happy or joyful. Be joyful every day for just another opportunity to, to, to be a, a, a curious learner. You never stop learning. I mean, for me, the most exciting part of my life is that I'm always trying to push the envelope and learn something new and to try to question something that I thought was true. And now I realize it was only partially true. <laughs> so I really feel like life is quite the adventure. And I think we have to realize that whether we were, uh, whether our forefathers were pioneers, in a sense, we are also pioneers, but in a very different way. And the more we uh, can, really give our best every day to trying to figure out what, what is this all about and what are the things that I can contribute to that may add some value to others and that our lives really were never about us. It's actually about the contribution we can make to others. 
you know, to that extent, we've probably got a life and a probably pretty good life. I can only speak for myself here, but I'm so grateful that, you know, your work and your commitment continues to take us on an adventure beyond high achievement. You know, they, yeah, I mean, yep. it is, yeah, the whole world is caught up in achievement. Um, and I've been to the top of the mountain with so many people, and that's not it. I put it this way, and I think I, when I first said it, I think it's one of those things that I think I got right in the beginning. More important than the chase is who you become as a consequence of the chase. If you're trying to scale a mountain and become number one, I want to know who you're becoming as a human being um, as a consequence of chasing. We were born to chase, but we want to chase the right things for the right reason. And every day we change a little more. We want to make sure we're becoming the person that we want to be as we push forward to base camp five in 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 trying to summer well five is a great number because i think we've entered the fifth set of our conversation <laughs> uh, can we finish with some just rapid fire questions for fun sure sure favorite movie uh, i just uh it's, i saw it four times now it's because i'm a military guy i love military top gun the latest top gun with tom cruise I've now seen it four times. I was very fortunate to be on a battleship on Strike Force 10 and right on the deck with all the F-18s and, the, and, the, and all the pilots and all the crew and uh, flew on and off the deck of a carrier on a Osprey 22 and flew off in a cod. And I just have, I do a lot of work with wounded warriors and I just have such respect for the commitment and the dedication that those people play and so for me that movie just put me on fire I mean it's a little bit and I've gotten a chance to work with Blue Angels and a lot of you know fighter pilots and um, those are real F-18s those are the real heroes and uh, I just I was on fire about it that was my best well, I'll tell you, I saw Top Gun as well, and it's amazing. Totally agree. When you talk about character, how cool was it to see Tom Cruise before the movie started say, look, we made this movie for you. Right. That, I mean, that touched me. It's like this guy, he's not just about high achievement. You know, he, he's in another world and he's so committed to his craft and he loves what he does. I, I thought that was pretty cool. And then the movie. I love his anti-aging. <laughs> formula whatever the heck that is i think he's 59 years old he looks like he's 50 yeah we have to get him on the podcast and and see what he <laughs> see what he thinks about um energy optimization worst job you ever had i wrote about it in uh leading with character um i was uh approached by i i had i worked in a graveyard and uh and I watered lawns. Um, you know, I had you were given like four or five law, uh, blocks that you would water, and you were, you know, based on how much green and how you took care of it. 
and I made 90 cents an hour. I wanted to buy a new car. I was not new, it was a used car, but my whole thing was to buy a car and I finally bought a car, but uh, with the money I made at the, at the um, graveyard, at the cemetery. And, uh, but the supervisor approached me and said, I'd like, I'm gonna offer you a dollar 10 cents an hour if you take this other job. Do you, man you mind manual labor? And I said, no, for a dollar 10 cents, I'd do anything. <laughs> so he said, well, you're going to be, uh, when, when rains come, uh, often the, the, it seeps in and sometimes the casket, the cement uh, casket cracks and breaks and it folds down and you can actually see that there's something has happened um, with, the, with the grave and it, we have to go in and repair it. You can't bring a backhoe in. You have to take all that soil out and grass and dirt. And then we bring in a big unit and they pull the top off and they put a new top on. Would you be willing to do that? I says, absolutely. And, <laughs> and then he left and four, three of the ghouliest human beings I've ever seen in my life came up to me and I can't, I won't say on your podcast what was said to me, <laughs> but I describe it in the book as the, the three scariest people I have ever met in my, I still have nightmares. <laughs> and he told me that you're going to see some things you're not going to want to see. And if you ever tell anyone, I have killed 11 people, you will be my 12th and no one will ever find them. I'm good at digging graves. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, what have I got myself into? <laughs> So the very first time we dug all the stuff out and these three guys dropped down into the grave and robbed the grave of rings and belt buckles and gold teeth. And I can still see the body floating around in this murky water and all this stuff. And I totally freaked out. And then he grabs me by the shirt and says, if you say one word, I'm not only kill you, but I will kill all of your family. <laughs> and this guy literally had had the eyes of Charles Manson. I mean, it was like the scariest thing I've ever seen. So I immediately went to the supervisor and says, I don't like manual labor. <laughs> but that was my worst job ever. And it, the the genesis of your your career in in peak performance and, and beyond right there. Favorite quote? Favorite quote. I mean, I have. I mean, I'm, I love quotes. Um, I, I don't know if I could pull up my absolute favorite quote, but one of them uh, is uh, that uh, the two most important days in your life are the days you were born and the day, the day you were born and the day you found out why. And uh, yep. that's Mark Twain. And um, I, I believe that's absolutely true. Favorite word? Favorite word? Favorite word. Um, I think it's uh, engagement. Yeah, it's a great word. Favorite animal? Uh, I used to train dogs and I love dogs. Um, had 
dogs most of my life and uh, but I my favorite dog is golden retriever if you could live anywhere other than where you are right now where would it be um that's a great question um I've been all over the world and I just I really love the US and it would probably be somewhere um, I visited there many times but it's a place called Sedona Sedona Arizona which the Indians used to speak of as the vortex of planet earth and uh, it's the most enchanting most gorgeous most richest walls is red canyon walls and so many of the ancient ruins are visible. You can walk through them of our, of our history. It's just, it's a magical place. That would be probably my, my place. Favorite song? Favorite song? Um, Tina Turner, only the best. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? No, I just hope that, you know, that my work in some way inspires others to reach a little deeper and to, you know, you know, kind of we all stand on the shoulders of other people. And if I have helped, I've stood on the shoulders of lots of great thinkers. And I'm hoping that maybe my work will inspire other people to find new new ways and better ways of helping human beings find their way back home. And we're in a very tough time. And these are very tough times, particularly for youth. And I'm starting a new company with a, with a bunch of incredible people called the Youth Performance Institute, applying all the things that we learn with adults to try to bring this to kids in a way that they can digest. Because I think kids, the pandemic by itself has caused almost the lost generation um, because they were, they had lost all their connection to other kids and to groups, they get, became addicted to gaming and the only device, the only person they had in their life other than family were the people they had online. And that often just, brutalized a lot of young boys and girls and so uh, I'm just hoping that some of my work around character can be applied in a positive one in a positive direction most importantly with children. Jim for for folks that want to engage with you further um, where can they find you online? So I'm on LinkedIn um, all over LinkedIn and then my um, my website is jim-layer, L-O-E-H-R.com. You can go on my website and I get the messages from there. Do you have any parting shots or words of wisdom for us before we head out today? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would just simply say, uh, first of all, I've enjoyed our conversation and thank you for the opportunity to, you know, explore some ideas. And we're all, we're all in this together. We're all trying to figure out how this Ruby cube works. 
and nobody has all the answers, least of all me. I'm just trying to do the best I can to find solutions and hopefully uh, we'll all put our ideas together and come up with something much better tomorrow and then the next day and the next day. And uh, for me, that's, that's all there is. Let's just make it better. Let's commit to getting a little bit better every day. Jim, I wanna thank you. I can attest you know, the, the level of your impact and the inspiration and the empowerment that I've experienced through your work, you know, through your commitment to excellence and improving and changing people's lives, it's real. And um, you know, I know that the student athletes that I'm fortunate to work with on a day-to-day -day basis um, are benefiting from your work through me. So thank you so much for taking the time for being with us today. Uh, thank you for having me, Renee, and I hope we, uh, we move the ball forward in some important way. We did. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Renee. Hope you enjoyed listening to Renee Vidal sharing stories of peak performance. Remember to listen, watch, subscribe, and review anywhere you get podcasts. Keep dominating on and off the court.